the simplest commercial baking resource. Brought to you by Bakerpedia and hosted by Mark Florka. With 45 years of industry experience, Mark knows the ins and outs of baking. He is Bakerpedia's community forum manager and baking instructor. He's here to share knowledge and help you grow connections. You're listening to the Baked In Science Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Baked In Science. In this episode, we're going to take a deep dive into the conversations around labeling claims. I have two guests that we'll be speaking with today, and I hope you will enjoy this interesting and exciting conversation as much as I did. We'll see you on the other side. We have known each other a little bit. I mean, I've known more of you. Really, you're sort of a staple in the food industry for labeling and nutritional information. And so, wanted to go a little bit through like who Lawrence Swan is, so to get our listeners familiar with who you are and why I've been very fortunate to have you on this podcast. Well, I am a registered dietitian since 1981. I sort of pivoted out of traditional healthcare. And went into nutrition communications. That's my graduate degree, mm-hmm. and that's how I ended up in food industry. My very first job after my master's was consumer communications specialist for Kraft Foods、What? in the consumer affairs department. And back then, this was long before the internet. So back then, I worked on educational brochures and booklets and newsletters. Some of them went directly to consumers. Some went to the gatekeepers, like. Home economics teachers—that's what we、mm-hmm. called them back then. Home economics、mm-hmm. teachers、mm-hmm. or dietitians, like doing a health fair, and we did campaigns and publicity. I enjoyed it a lot. And around 1985, Kellogg's went to the Cancer Institute and said, "We want to put this on our box that says, 'If you eat all brand cereal, it's high in fiber, it reduces your risk of cancer.'" and When they printed it and put it out, FDA was like, "Wait a minute, that's not the <laughs> turf. That's our turf. That is considered to be what kind of sparked the NLEA of 1990." And it's hard、mm-hmm. to believe it's what 32 years old. Yes, yeah,、um, yeah. But that's what I established my consulting business on. There were so many companies that would need help. Adding this nutrition facts label, which was not standard or mandatory at one time, and then all of the claims that got defined and regulated, and I've been working in the area ever since. I have also worked on staff for Vlasic Foods. It was a spinoff company from the Campbell Soup. I managed the Swanson frozen meal line, so I also got USDA experience, which、wow. is a whole different labeling matter than FDA. The way they approach and manage、yep. things.、Mm-hmm. But I really enjoy labeling. I enjoy nutrition and marketing communications. And to me, the food label is at the intersection of marketing communications and brand product promotions、mm-hmm. because it's the technical information. A lot of my work doesn't necessarily have to do with reviewing labels per se. I'm working on a project now that involves reviewing. All of the communications and public relations materials and information that will go out to social media influencers 
to ensure that what they say or write is not in violation of a labeling regulation. Because when it comes to branded product communications, anything in social media can be considered an extension of labeling. That's a whole can of worms right there. I mean, as we well know from some of the many other things related to politics and stuff, how misinformation gets spread very, very quickly, right? It somehow seems to flow faster. You mentioned that you're a registered dietitian. Funny personal story, side stories, like you mentioned you've been a registered dietitian since 1981. I went for dinner the other night here. I live on Cape Breton Island in, in Atlantic Canada. And I mentioned to the waitress that, you know, how I ended up here was that I worked at a very famous resort, the Celtic Lodge, in 1983. And her response was, that's the year I was born. <laughs> and all of a sudden, we start to feel so old. Oh, I feel ancient, without yeah. question. Besides your registered dietitian, you have a few other letters that I've noticed behind your name. Tell us about those. Well, MS is Master of Science. Mm -hmm. RD is Registered Dietitian. Yeah. And LDN is Licensed Dietitian Nutritionist. And that's mm -hmm. for the state of Pennsylvania. That's the state licensure. Oh, interesting. interesting. And so a lot of people seem to, in my opinion, I have, I have a good friend of mine who is a registered dietitian, and she is uh, supports a, a university football team to ensure that they're getting the nutrition they need and, and things like that. At a, and, you know, and she does also the, I guess, the cafe at the same time with them and stuff like that. We see people with these letters. There's a lot more to it than, you know, like you've already said, you have your master's and the R&D and the LDN. So tell us a little bit more about that, because I know it's not an easy process. Right? right. To become a registered dietitian, you have to complete a pre-planned program that meets the requirements to take the exam to become an R&D. And I remember after I finished mine and passed the test telling my colleagues, I felt like it was what I had to go through to qualify to sit the exam was more rigorous than the exam itself. Mm -hmm. The program I went through was a coordinated undergraduate program. So I was able to qualify after four years of earning a bachelor's degree, where many dietitians after their four-year program have to go find an internship and do an internship for a year to qualify. So the coordinated undergraduate program essentially worked the internship into the last two years of college. I was sometimes carrying 23 hours a semester, 23 mm -hmm. credit hours a year. So, that's, yeah. so it was really concentrated. That's what it takes to become a registered dietitian. Most state licensure just adapts the national, but then they might have different criteria for maintenance. Mm -hmm. I have to submit evidence of continuing education credits well at the state and federal level at the federal mm -hmm. level for the national it's only every five years at the state level it's every two or three years mm -hmm. and that those requirements are different there's some things that the national level will accept as continuing ed that the state level will not uh -huh. so i do have Pay attention to that too. Oh, interesting. I wanted to be sure people are aware of how rigorous it is that it's not something to be taken lightly. I appreciate it. So great to have you in our fold of social media, as we talked about it, because you do 
post a lot on LinkedIn. You keep us informed and you encourage discussion and things like that, which, which is always great. I really appreciate that. And, and I've learned a lot from it, you know, over the years and, and stuff too. And one of the things why I wanted to chat with you is that we have a lot of through Bakerpedia and our, our bakers and members, we have a lot of people who are entrepreneurs and trying to get into certain things with their products going from, you know, maybe a home base, even production to real world production and putting something on a shelf and stuff like that. So that once you put it in a package, you got to have a label on it. Wanted to start with maybe them being aware of what is needed and try to cover some of this in general, because we could go hours, I'm sure. right? But for example, for added sugar, that created a lot of confusion when that came out. Canada has treated it slightly differently. They don't have an added sugar requirement. What they require is that all instances of sugar be lumped together in the ingredient declaration to impose upon that it's like becomes the second or third ingredient now instead of breaking them up. But in the U.S., which is the more dominant one that most of us all follow, is the added sugar labeling. So can you tell us a little bit or the basics of it? I've been in presentations where there was hour-long discussions on this, right? Your thoughts, and can you share that with us a bit? Yeah, added sugar is interesting because the added sugar separate line item on the Nutrition Facts label wasn't part of the original upgrade that came later. We call that the 2016. Mm -hmm. And I remember when it was proposed, there was definitely pushback from industry. And there was all this stuff about the body can't tell the difference between an added sugar or a natural sugar. But I think it's important because we have learned a lot and we do learn as we go along. During the 1980s, the focus was a lot on fat and cholesterol. We had sugar substitutes, but in finished food products, a lot of the focus was on lowering fat and cholesterol and saturated fatty acids, and that's where the claims were. I believe what's happened is we've moved forward after focusing on that, and it's sort of like a drill down. Mm -hmm. And we discover when you drill down to another level – Here's another variable or factor in our health issues that we need to address. And it does appear to be that added sugars, which FDA defines, they have a definition about what an added sugar is and what mm -hmm. it isn't. Yep. So, for example, if you add a concentrated fruit juice to up the sweetening and you don't add enough water to reconstitute it back to a single strength, it can be considered an added sugar. Added sugar. Yep. And they have a guidance on that. And one of the things I think is kind of odd about the added sugar declaration on the nutrition facts panel is it has a percent daily value, but the total sugars doesn't. So yeah. <laughs> a little bit weird. Yeah. But it's difficult to say this is how much sugar or added sugar you should get a day, especially mm -hmm. since sugars are part of carbohydrates. And there's a difference between a sugar and added sugar and a complex carb. Mm -hmm. So it can get kind of complicated to tease out the variables that you're trying yeah. to approach. This podcast is brought to you by Grain Millers, a leading manufacturer of organic and conventional whole grain ingredients focused on supplying safe and healthy ingredients that add value. Check out their gluten-free oats, fibers, wheat, barley, and rye ingredients at grainmillers.com.
I remember some of the discussion too around where it kind of gets warm and fuzzy, as I say. The concept, like you said, using the, the fruit juice concentrate as an example, because I know in baking and pastry, we've often used either apple juice or orange juice concentrates as a way to impart sweetness and flavor. So that becomes then an added sugar. So then there was these discussions around whole fruits, for example. So can you use applesauce because it doesn't have the skin anymore? Or is that then considered an added sugar? As long as it isn't concentrated, you don't have to call it an added sugar. And that's where it kind of gets a little blurry sometimes, right? But it does not contribute to a serving of fruit because it's missing the peel. It's, it's, it's all, there's confusion there. And so do, do you feel that it, in from what you see on labeling, have, do you feel that, that the understanding of added sugars and the compliance, I guess I'll call it, has improved now in the last six years? What you just said, because if you're using apple puree, because yeah. it does have the peel, maybe that's how it is in Canada. But in the U.S., you can use apple puree in a product and you can calculate the equivalence of a fruit serving and uh -huh. actually declare that on the label. So let's say you made some sort of a, a muffin yeah. and you use applesauce instead of solid fat in it. Mm -hmm. If you could determine the amount of apple serving in that muffin, you could declare that. Yes, oh, really? That's cool. Okay. Right. okay. I think where it gets a little bit tricky is fruit puree concentrate. So not yeah. a juice concentrate, but a whole fruit concentrate. I've gone back into the regulations on that one. As I recall, that can depend on whether or not it was specifically added as a sweetening agent. I remember going through this once and it was kind of tricky. It's definitely an added sugar, but the fruit puree concentrate may or may not be considered an added sugar. As far as people understanding it, we have unfortunately learned over the past three decades, the nutrition facts label doesn't seem to be <laughs> a factor in helping us. Now, not so much that people aren't using it, but our public health concerns are still there. Mm -hmm. We still have hypertension, which is related to excess sodium. We still have cardiometabolic syndrome. We still have elevated cholesterol levels. We still have these things in our population in spite of nearly 30 years of this nutrition facts label. Mm -hmm. So that yep. is concerning. My understanding is the research shows that people tend to use it as a reason to not buy a product. So if they're trying to control something in their diet and they look at the label and it's too high, they'll put it back. Mm -hmm. But you know, how many people just buy it because they really want it and they don't want to be bothered? I am very guilty of enjoying Doritos uh, corn chips, right? So <laughs> my wife will buy the big bags, like the 300 gram bags or something like that. It says on the Nutrition Facts panel that one serving is 15 chips. And I'm kind of like, it reminds me of that show, Different Strokes. So what you talking about? A whole bag is a serving for me sometimes, right? <laughs> it makes us much more aware than, you know, when the key to, as you said, is to, to understand that if that 15 chips is a 130 calories, 
maybe I shouldn't eat the whole bag while watching the hockey game, right? <laughs> That's a very valid point. We do that sometimes, my wife and I as well, is that occasionally we will put something back because especially my wife has hypertension. So if it's high in sodium, we will uh, we will tend to avoid it or use the information to eat a smaller portion. Some other things that have come up that we've discussed a little bit too is protein claims. Each claim has its own sort of criteria. Basis for the claims always is the, the size of the serving on a custom occasion, what people often call a rack, recommended amount customarily consumed. There's another one that uses the word occasion. Rack is reference amount. Oh, reference amount. Yes. And what they're getting at is the amount that people typically consume in one eating occasion. So FDA in 2016, when the added sugar went on there, they revisited serving sizes. That was part of the change. For example, ice cream, I think the serving size went from a half a cup to two thirds of a cup. Mm-hmm. I could be wrong about that exactly, but I know ice cream was one of the ones that changed. Slurping your calories is one of the worst things you can do. But when we associate the need to hydrate with a sweet taste, that's where we can run into some issues. Yeah. Even if it's not sugar, but some sort of sugar sweetener alternative. I think that people are woefully unaware of how risky that behavior can be. One of the things I wanted to talk about was protein. Now, I have a, an affinity with that because of my longtime work with Archer Daniels Midland, where I did work with the protein group a lot on various things. And that tends to be something that is very misunderstood because you can put one thing on the nutrition label But then if you want to put something on the front of pack and make a claim, there's a different set of criteria that has to be met. (laughs) Um, And it gets really (laughs) blurry and confusing at that point, right? Do you have an abbreviated way that you can fill us in on this? (laughs) I understand how this can all be so complicated. So to give it some context... FDA has defined what we call nutrient content claims in the regulations, which means if you want to make a claim of that nature, it's all spelled out what you can say, what you cannot say, what the product composition or nutrient composition has to be. So those are for claims like high fiber, mm-hmm. low fat, mm-hmm. good source of vitamin C. Yep. Okay. So those are nutrient content claims. They're defined. You have all of the criteria and everything. They also define relative nutrient content claims like more fiber than or Uh less sodium than or, you know, higher, whatever. 25% less sugar. (laughs) Now, all those claims have a qualifying term, high, low, rich, Mm -hmm. excellent source of So that's not quite the same as taking those exact quantitative numbers out of the nutrition facts panel and with no qualifying terms, putting them on the front label. We refer to them in the industry as front of pack call outs. Yep. So they're not saying high fiber or low sodium. They're just putting the numbers on the front of the label. And 
before the front of pack labeling sort of stepped up because it's going on all over the world, all kinds of research and studies on it. Before that happened, FDA already had a regulation that said when you take a nutrient out of the nutrition facts panel and put it elsewhere on the label, even if it is only a quantitative statement, it can be considered an implied nutrient content claim. Mm -hmm. So that's where we get into, are these claims or are they not claims? And then an organization, I think they're known today as the Food Brands Association, okay, because they were once, I think, grocery manufacturers. They came out with a front of pack system that we often see on products today, where FDA went along with certain things even though they're not qualified, for example, you might not necessarily have to declare poly and monounsaturated fats yep. in the nutrition facts panel if you put saturated fats on the front panel. Normally, if you made a claim about saturated fatty acids, you would have to declare all of them in the nutrition facts panel. Mm -hmm. So there are some, not really exceptions, FDA calls it enforcement discretion. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. when this trade association came to them and said, this is what we'd like industry to do and here's the reasons why, and FDA agreed, they agreed and came back and said, if you do it this way, even though this regulation is on the books, we will probably consider it under these circumstances. Yeah. And, and that's an example of the industry working with FDA. Yeah. I think it's a good thing. I think collaborative work is a good thing. The other thing going on are the warning symbols. That's the next thing that's been heating up. We don't have them here in the U.S. yet. But yeah, there is a chance we'll be looking at warning symbols or statements on the front of PAC. I listened in on a seminar or a presentation recently. There's a professor at University of Laval. One of the big things that's been coming up here in Canada that might roll out into the U.S. is precautionary allergen labeling that is basically trying to eliminate the may contain and uh, made on the same line as and, and things like then bring better definition to that for the consumer, right? In terms of contamination and stuff like that. One thing I wanted to make sure that we also let everybody know is that you have your own consultancy, as you remember, and that is Food Facts Works. That's the URL address for my website. Yeah. Yeah. My company's actually named Concept Nutrition Inc. Okay. Yes. I specialize in food labeling, marketing communications, and I also have a specialty in cultural foodways. And oh, nice. um, about the may contain system, something interesting about that. FDA does not regulate what we consider voluntary precautionary statements mm -hmm. so may contain or manufactured in a facility that also produces egg products you know whatever mm -hmm. those statements on labels are voluntary and they are not regulated and right before our interview i went and looked it up to make sure i was you know current <laughs> because these things keep you know they change yeah they keep changing yeah <laughs> FDA has made statements about them, but they have not published an official 
draft guidance for industry, what they tend to say is they want to remind consumers that a may contain statement is not the same as a processed in a facility statement and that the allergen associations, the, the groups that advocate for the rights of those who have allergens and mm-hmm, you know disclosure mm-hmm. that they advise people not to eat it. If it says may contain or produced in a facility and you're allergic to it, don't eat it. But the problem is with like with the sesame. So now companies feel if I have to meet this regulation, I'm going to add it directly because technically the allergen labeling is about what you add directly. It's not really about cross-contamination. FDA has announced in its goals to address this. So I know industry is anxiously waiting and I am impressed and I'm very glad. I'm not necessarily surprised that industry is interested in this due diligence. This is a challenge in production facilities. The ability to separate these things out and make sure there's no cross-contamination can be an issue. And I just have one question. Yeah. As much as I understand that industry struggles with this and they want to do the right thing. I mean, Mm -hmm. people who work in food industry can have allergies. They might have family allergies. They know how serious this is. How is it that companies are able to come out with these gluten-free products and they're still producing things that contain wheat or dairy-free, like for milk? That's the part that doesn't make sense to me. I've seen this in restaurants. I've seen it from manufacturers on the one minute, oh, we can't control the cross-contamination. The next minute, no, we have a dedicated place to make this and we make sure, you know, that's odd. This has been Excellent, Lauren. I kind of feel like uh, now that I've I've had a chance to connect with you uh, virtually in person is that we may have another one of these discussions. There's always something happening in labeling in case you can't tell from my social media posts. I love it. I never grow tired of it. I just find it fascinating. And the past couple of years, FDA has stepped up right now. They're addressing industry sodium issues, front of pack labeling, a healthy claim revision. Mm -hmm. They're really working on a lot specifically related to the label and nutrition that's sort of been backburnered. So Mm -hmm. I'm impressed. I hope it keeps going because these are important things that we need to get settled. This episode is sponsored by Nepra Foods. Their specialty ingredients and blends make it easier for commercial bakeries and leading food brands to offer world-class allergen-free plant-based products without compromising flavor, texture, and nutrition. To see what's possible, visit neprafoods.com. Well, as you can gather, Lauren and I had a really interesting conversation, and there's lots more of that where I'm going to save for another episode. At this point now, we're going to switch over and speak with Kamran Khan, who also addresses labeling information in India. Tell me a little bit about your background for everyone. I am MSc in chemistry analytical chemistry. Before I had done my BTEC in biotechnology, mm-hmm. I started my career way back 2008 as an analytical chemist mm-hmm. uh, in a food laboratory. I was quite uh, interested in the microbiology and all. They said you can try you can try in analytical department and maybe after six months we'll send you to the microbiology. Then onwards, I focused 
more into this testing part. I have 10 plus years of experience mm-hmm. in the analytical testing. Then I got a chance into the regulatory uh, framework. One of my senior told me that enough of the testings and you can now try your hand in the regulations, what all the new regulations are coming up. Because before 2006, there was a prevention of food adulteration act in India. So there was no food regulation as such. Like today, we have a food safety and standard authority of India mm-hmm, mm-hmm. was making the rules and regulation here. And before 2006, there was no such act. So they introduced the act in 2006. It became more stringent in 2011. They introduced various rules and regulations like contaminants regulation, the food additive regulations, and as you can say, they introduced the advertisement and claims regulation. So day by day, the store authority is a little bit stricter. In 2017, we got our first nutraceutical food supplement regulations. So before oh. that, the all the dietary supplements, it started from your side only from the West. What strikes me is that it sounds like too, that you know, in the early part of the 2000s, especially like you mentioned around 2006, even in Europe and North America, that's when a lot of regulations were being reviewed and tightened up and improved. A lot of the allergen regulations came out around 2004. And so that basically sounds like, well, then India recognized that they need to develop better standards if they want to play in that sandbox, right? You know, as you rightly, you know, mentioned too, in terms of nutritional supplements and things like that, it was something that was starting to come a lot out of many parts of Asia. You know, especially there was a scandal with a nutrient that is used a lot in baby formula that came out of China and it was laced with melamine. melamine. Yeah, melamine. There was a problem with this. This sort of lends itself to that, you know, you needed better regulation to be able to have the credibility in the world to say, if you buy from India, it's safe. I'll take it forward from you that melamine, after this melamine incident mm-hmm. in India here, here we have banned, the regulatory bodies have banned all the milk imports, milk and milk product import from China. Yep. So mm-hmm. till now, there is no import. From yep. China, we usually import from uh, Europe, UK, and all the countries. Yeah, in so, North America, it ended up being an industry-wide self-imposed ban. In other words, the government did not do any regulation, okay. but basically all the manufacturers said, if it's from China, we don't want it. Here is the regulatory body, the FSSCI, the usually yeah. ban, because here in India, usually the manufacturing bodies, they mostly focus on the revenues. Mm-hmm. The safety concern, they are not that much concerned about the safety as you are. Uh, this is a ma- major challenge we are facing. That's why the authority is being stricter day by day, because someone has to come up for the safety of the individuals. Is India a net exporter or do these regulations apply to people who want to import things to India as well? From India, we usually export most of the cereal products worldwide. We are mostly pioneer into the Ayurvedic supplements. You usually know the Ayurveda, mm-hmm. the, the traditional science uh, technique. It comes from here. And usually when the, these the demands, the demand of Ayurvedic supplements is huge in the Western countries. So usually we export these Ayurveda under the dietary supplement category to US as well. Import, regarding import, we import a lot of material from US. Glenbia, we have a proper supplement brand, uh, brand on, on nutrition. 
So mm-hmm. Glanbia has their own uh, supplement brand here as well. And most of the supplement manufacturer, the gym going supplements, the whey based material, they comes from Glanbia to India. Import regulation from last year onwards, SSCI has introduced new things. They have started the foreign manufacturing facility registration for high risk foods. High risk food means the dairy products, the meat products, poultry products, fish products, supplements, they all comes under the high risk food category. Uh-huh. And if anyone wants to import such products here in India, they need to firstly get the foreign facility from where they are getting it manufactured in any part of the world. They have to get that foreign facility here in India with the FSSCI. There's a simple mm-hmm. online procedure. They need to fill a form uh, along with some certain documents and they need to send it to the food regulatory body here in India, in FSSA. They will scrutinize it and they'll give the approval letter and they'll list here in their made a website also for these foreign food manufacturing. So they'll list that country and product here and yeah. then we can get the product imported. Along with that, health certificate requirement is recently yes, yeah, coming absolutely, up. Yeah. So yeah. it is actually most of the countries are not well versed with all the things they need to take care of because for milk and milk products, for meat and meat, for fish and fish product and for pork and pork products. Mm-hmm. These three categories are mandatory for health certificates. So right now the FSSA has given an extension. It is under the review. So I think most probably in two, three months, uh, everything gets sorted out because every exporter globally, they need to get the health certificate from their respective body yep. there in their own country. These are in force. The major thing what we need to take care of key that, that ingredient or the product that we want to import here should be approved here mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in India because saw palmetto, as you know, it is a very, I mean to say, common ingredient in your country, but here it is not approved. And many, many botanical ingredients likewise, yeah. which are still not approved here. And so for bakers in, in India, you have regulations as far as claims. Like, do you have health claims, like things that we have on health claims here in North America? The regulation calls them nutrient content claims. Yeah, 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 um, yes. And so these would be things like low fat, low sugar or reduced sugar, high protein, high fiber, you know, or good source of fiber. And do you have similar types of claim regulations? See, generally here in FSCI, we are aligned with Codex, not okay. with FDA, mm-hmm. not mm-hmm. with FDA, but Codex. Yep. So mm-hmm. what all the limits defined uh, under the Codex, almost the same similar limits here in India, like we have made this advertisement claims with reference from Codex only. Before 2018, most of the food manufacturers, what they were doing, they are giving the claims like anything. If they are not complying with the nutrient limits, they are not complying with the functional limits of the nutrients. They are giving the claim like anything. So in 2018, FSSI comes uh, with this advertising and claim regulation. They have defined these type of claims that what are nutrition claim, what are nutrient content claim, nutrient comparative claims, the nutrient equivalence claims, and then the nutrient functional claims. Mm -hmm. And they have also disease risk reduction claims which are mostly used by the food supplement brands. Yes. Because these supplements are not intended for the treatment or cure of any disease or physiological condition and Mm -hmm. not also for the reduction of any disease. So FSSCI has given some specific 
nutrient-wise disease-resistant claim. And if an FBO want special claims, they need to give some special claims on the pack. We have a new product approval regulation here. That is non-specified food approval and claims. So in which we have to submit some scientific rationales, the regulatory data worldwide, if okay. the certain ingredients or a claim on certain ingredient is validated somewhere in the globally in West or in Southeast Asia or any part of the world and on the studies in vivo in vitro. So in basis of that, we can apply the new product as well. So some of the importers and manufacturers here in India, they have taken approval for this saw palmetto also. Vitamin D3 from Lycom source. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Veg vitamin D3. So most of the FBOs, they have taken the approval, this product approval. So the preferred method in India or process is to, if you're going to make a claim on your product, that you submit all your evidence to the license, the inspection agency, and they yeah. will give you approval. And then you, you have that. to worry about being inspected all the time, right? If you don't yep. get approval first, then you could end up getting inspected. And Definitely. And one more thing, the soft claims mean to say the nutrient functional claims like it helps in brain health, in yeah. heart mm-hmm. health. Mm-hmm. These type of claims, if you are giving and if you haven't taken any approval, prior approval from authority, mm-hmm. you need to submit the data when asked. Yep. They can ask it every time. Recently, in last month only, FSSCI has conducted surveillance drives mm-hmm. for the nutraceuticals. And many of the prominent brands, they have found misbranded products. Interesting. And Is this what you do as your business now? You help food manufacturers and yeah, bakers yeah. with the claims and, and filing for approvals and things like that? So what we offer, we, we start from the beginning. If any of the food business operators, they want to start a business, we help them to get the food license first. Because if you want to start a food business, you have to have a So you, you should be like the first stop if they want to yeah, make sure yeah, that yeah. everything is meets regulations for not only claims, but cleanliness and sound product and all that yeah. kind of stuff. We are the connecting dots as well. We, we connect them to the various food manufacturers as well. If you are a person who want to get your product manufactured from a third-party manufacturing unit, we can connect you with them also. We mm-hmm. will look after all the compliances, product development as well. If the product is as in line with the regulations, we get mm-hmm. the formulation compliance done. Then we'll get the label compliance done. The labeling and display regulation is in force. What all the things you are mentioning on the label, it should be compliant. We'll coordinate with the quality department to get the product tested as well as per the regulation and check whether your product is compliant. Mm-hmm. So after doing all these things, we can go ahead with the product launch. So here in India, actually before 2022, any of the marketer, if you are a marketer, you want to get your product manufactured and you are not having your own facility you can get uh, the product manufactured from any of the manufacturers mm-hmm. so in that case what fssi had done they have uh, started a relabeler license relabeler means relabeler are the deemed manufacturers mm-hmm. mean to say they have to comply with all the regulation yep. and they should get a license under relabeler they have to get the noc from the manufacturer that manufacturer will give a NOC that this company want to get their product manufactured from us. And this is the formula. The marketer need to submit it with the food regulation authority. They'll scrutinize whether the manufacturer is having the valid license to manufacture. 
then they'll issue a relabeler license to the marketer. And then only you can sell your product in the market. Excellent. Very good. Obviously, there's a lot more going on with regulation in India than people may realize. And it's important for our bakers in India to also be aware that if they aren't already approved and compliant with the claims and regulations that they need to contact you or somebody like you, preferably contact you, obviously, and make sure that they have all of their T's crossed and I's dotted and to ensure that everything meets compliance, because that makes everything go so much smoother and your business can grow so much better when everything is already out of the way and you don't have to worry about you know, if an inspection agency comes and, yep, here's my certificate, I've got the approval for this, I've got the health certificate for that. Like I always like to say, Bob's your uncle, or maybe Mohammed or something in your case. Right? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. This has been excellent. Thank you very much for your time. This has been very interesting. And I think we'll probably follow up this chat again sometime to sure, see sure. how things are developing further. Right? Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mr. Mark. My pleasure. Have a wonderful evening and we'll talk to you again soon. Today's episode is made possible by Grain Millers, a trusted ingredient partner specializing in organic and conventional whole grain ingredients that boost nutrition and taste. Their products and partnerships allow you to provide simple, clean food that helps people live healthier lives. Find out how at grainmillers.com. Thank you very much for your time. I'll try to be as succinct as we can and being respectful of your time as well. If you could briefly introduce yourself to us and uh, what you do at Laval. I'm a Samuel Godfoy. I'm a professor of food risk analysis and uh, regulatory policies in the Department of Food Science at Laval University. So essentially, I developed a program in food regulatory science as part of our uh, food science curriculum in the Faculty of Agriculture and uh, Food Science at Laval. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, I do research areas, you know, research activities in uh, in these particular fields. Our research tends to be very much applied in, in the sense that we try to offer scientific underpinning to changes in regulatory policies or changes in regulations, but also we attempt to contribute to the extent possible to building or transforming food regulatory programs around the world and with a particular emphasis on capacity building in development countries. Oh, excellent. Fantastic. Oh, I've always wanted to volunteer with Cisco. I think it's called the Canadian Executives Overseas or something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, it's something that's sort of still on my mind that I'd love to do. It's also in developing countries, assisting and things like that. You caught my interest and I got had the opportunity. I sat in on a webinar regarding precautionary allergen labeling. Now, I experienced the change as it took place in the late 90s, early 2000s, when allergen labeling first came into B in, in Canada and in the US. And it was pretty daunting task for a lot of us because we had to realize that there was a lot of cross-contamination happening that we didn't have any control over or just weren't aware of. And you had some really interesting viewpoints. Of course, this podcast is primarily directed towards bakers. And a lot of bakers, they want to do specialized production, you know, like say gluten-free, for example, is always the big one, right? Or even other things where things that they make in their bakery 
you know, where do they have to be concerned about allergen labeling and how can they label this correctly with this coming on board now what Canada is looking at doing and potentially the U.S. might do something along a similar lines. It's pretty much an area really of, of interest right now because as you know in the context of uh, allergen management if you are an allergic consumer your primary link to a product that is prepackaged is essentially the label of the food yep. and you tend to put practically your trust and sometimes your life mm -hmm. in the accuracy of the information that is provided to you. Now, we have made the headway in changing the way allergens are labeled when they are part of a recipe, when they are mm -hmm. an ingredient, which means that when they are deliberately added to a product. Yep. But when we encounter situations and food manufacturers encounter these situations more often than sometimes they would want themselves, because again, it's a complex supply chain, mm -hmm. when we encounter a situation where the allergen may be present or is present as a result of its unintended occurrence, this can come from different sources. It can come from a supplier that gives us an ingredient that may have yep. come in contact with something else. It may come from even actually a ingredient or raw material such as cereals, which are transported, handled, managed in a manner where you cannot avoid the commingling of those cereals between themselves or let's say cereals and soy, for example, or cereals mm -hmm. and mustard. So essentially, you have some situations where this unintended presence happens as a result of the agricultural product themselves and also of the even the standards that allow such contamination to happen simply for practical reasons. And the third situation that can be encountered by manufacturers is the fact that it is very hard to dedicate installations or lines of production to one single product. And you may have recipes as a manufacturer where in one recipe you have an allergen, let's say you have milk or egg, and in another recipe you may not have or you do not want to have egg or milk. <laughs> but even though you apply sanitation practices between one production batch and another production batch, you may end up with a situation where those sanitation practices are not, you know, effective enough to eliminate those remainder uh, residues, if you will, of that allergen. Yeah. And the question is, how do you manage that? Now, we found a way in Canada at the time, so that's the late 1990s, I believe that we were the jurisdiction that came up with this. How do you manage a situation where, you know, the allergen has a likelihood to be there, but it was never intended to be there. So we actually invented the may contain statement. And the may contain statement was effective for a period because it was used truly for those situations where essentially the manufacturer did its due diligence and identified that they could not guarantee that that unintended presence could be avoided. So mm -hmm. it's better to inform the consumer rather than otherwise. Mm -hmm. The problem is, and as it is with any type of practice, is that with time, unfortunately, the use of the statement lost of its value. In, in what sense? First of all, we have witnessed various practices in these uses. So it is not odd to find right now a product where you have two ingredients in the product list and yet 
you have the entirety of the priority allergens in the may contain statement. So sometimes, you know, you could question, yep. should I have a may contain shrimp or crustaceans in an apple pie? I mean, yep. the likelihood of that happening is very much, you know, it, it's questionable. Let's put mm -hmm. it this way. Mm -hmm. So as a result of that, you have consumers that have started losing confidence and trust in this information because, first of all, they are no longer able to find products that do not have a may-contain statement. So essentially, there is a huge reduction of choice. Yeah. And the second element is the fact that you can see these containing a huge list of allergens without sometimes being justified by logic. Basically, consumers started taking chances yeah. and saying, you know what, I ate this last time and it was fine. Mm -hmm. And you know what, I ate it last time and it didn't have a may-contain statement. So I bet they are putting the may-contain statement simply to protect themselves. Yeah, And that's <laughs> essentially what is creating, you know, this level of misunderstanding. And another also type of practice that we've seen is that we started seeing statements that mean everything and nothing, you know, Telling me that this product was manufactured in a facility that handles peanuts doesn't really tell me whether the product is risky for me or not. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yes, it is a fact. I mean, yes, you are not lying. You're telling me something. But what that something means to me as an allergic consumer in order to make a decision on whether to eat that product or not it is not helpful. Yeah, so absolutely. now we identify that this is an issue and it needed to be tackled. And mm -hmm. how it can be tackled? In a couple of ways. First of all, really going back to allergen management practices and making sure that these practices are well disseminated, well understood, and potentially well followed by manufacturers. And then at the second level also, making sure that as part of those allergen management practices, we have a guidance as to when the precautionary labeling becomes an effective tool, a useful tool. And this can only happen by applying those allergen management practices, identifying those situations where that risk cannot be ruled out, mm -hmm. and therefore actually deciding to apply that allergen statement in the form of a may-contain statement as a result of an assessment of the risk. Mm -hmm. So here, it is a risk-based decision. And if those practices become followed, we think that we can restore the value of the risk management nature, mm -hmm. if you will, of these statements, and hopefully the trust of consumers there. Now, this also will require potentially for regulators to actually create a different framework in the way these statements are regulated. Yep. Because mm -hmm. right now, these statements are voluntary. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I am yet to see a regulatory action on a manufacturer that potentially overused the allergen <laughs> precautionary statements. Yeah, yeah. We see the opposite, however. Yeah. We mm -hmm. see that if a manufacturer, allergens. exactly, mm -hmm. when we have an undeclared allergen as a result mm -hmm. of cross-contact or cross-contamination, they expose themselves to that, you know, uh, regulatory action and a recall of a product if essentially the unintended presence is proven to be. That likelihood was demonstrated 
not only to be a likelihood, but we found it, you know, we detected it in a, in a product. Yeah, I, I remember so, when I used to check the CFA's recall list regularly, majority of them were always undeclared allergens. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So I think actually over 30% right now of our recalls in Canada, and in fact, in many of OECD countries are essentially allergen related. So this is really what we have undertaken to do. And we did it ship of our uh, main food allergy association in Canada. And that's Food Allergy Canada. So uh, I have to give them the credit for the advocacy group that speaks on behalf of uh, food allergic consumers and their families. They actually reached out to us, but they also reached out to the uh, manufacturing community here in Canada. And we created a project that was funded by a federal program that is the Agri-Assurance Program administered by Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada. And as a result of that, what we did is we did not really reinvent the wheel. What we did is we we tried to review the practices of food allergen management, and we came up with a consensus guidance uh, that is coming, of course, from best practices that are documented, mm -hmm. but also that took into account the way our Canadian manufacturers apply these allergen management approaches. Mm -hmm. And we came up with this in the form of a guidance document, and we really insisted on those situations where a decision needs to be made on whether an allergen precautionary labeling or an allergen precautionary statement should be applied. So we tried to take a couple of examples, you know, from, I would say, real manufacturing situations and showed how this so-called risk assessment, because yep. it's really uh, an assessment of the risk, mm -hmm. how it should be applied, taking into account the realities of the manufacturing process, mm -hmm. and then actually how a decision can be made, including taking into account the fact that food allergies are not a zero to, you know, everything reaction. You have yeah. thresholds. Yeah. That actually trigger a reaction. Mm -hmm. And we can use these thresholds with mm -hmm. that assessment of the risk to identify situations where a precautionary statement is not needed. The best example is essentially the question that comes to a manufacturer. You receive a raw material and in your raw material, there is a may contain statement. So comes to you the question, shall I actually take that may contain statement and put it on my product because I'm using an ingredient that yeah. has a may contain statement? Yeah. And our answer is, it should not be automatic. It must be based on a risk assessment that takes into account the manufacturing conditions mm -hmm. and basically deciding on whether or not it is relevant to carry over that precautionary statement. Because if the conditions are such that even if there was a small amount in the ingredient, but this ingredient will be part of a recipe where its contribution to the total you know, recipe will be so small that it is likely to induce a very minimum, you know, presence, mm -hmm. even if it were present. And a lot of those things, like you have pointed out in the beginning with the cross-contamination amongst grains. Mark. Unfortunately, part of the recording got cut off as my internet signal dropped. But to wrap things up, Sam and I discussed how it is one of the most common cross-contamination situations that we become aware of in the baking industry is with oats. It is very difficult to find gluten-free oats most of the time because they become contaminated in harvest and in the trucks with barley or wheat. So the risk assessment there is, is very different. 
different. One of our sponsors at Bakerpedia, Grain Millers, they provide a risk-free, segregated, gluten-free oat. And of course, that is quite a chore to have to have dedicated trucks and everything, or to have to have trucks that go through a specialized allergen wash. And so I really appreciate the time from Mr. Godfroy and look forward to hopefully speaking with him again on another Baked in Science podcast. And with that, we conclude this insightful episode of Baked in Science. My thanks go out to Lauren Swan, Kamran Khan, and Samuel Godefroy for joining me. We hope you enjoyed our deep dive into the world of label claims, nutrition regulations, and allergen labeling, and global standards. You've been listening to Baked in Science podcast. Stay tuned for future episodes where we'll continue to unravel the mysteries of baking and food science. Visit our website at www.bakerpedia.com for show notes, resources, and updates. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review. And remember, bake with knowledge, bake with passion. Goodbye for now.